This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Andrew Alexander, a former Washington Post ombudsman, a former Washington bureau chief for Cox Newspapers, and an award-winning veteran journalist with more than four decades of experience. He also teaches ethics at the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University. During his career, Andy has reported from more than 50 countries, and he's directed news coverage both domestically and internationally. He's a member of the board of the American Society of News Editors and has led its Freedom of Information Committee. Andy also serves on the New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists. This group assists journalists who have been subjected to attacks, arrests, and harassment worldwide. Today, Andy will help us understand the use of anonymous sources by journalists and the ethics surrounding this controversial method of reporting. We have been reading and hearing all of these stories, especially in the Washington Post, where you were the ombudsman, and the New York Times, uh, stories that list anonymous sources. So before we get to the actual writing of the story and the editing of the story, Let's go back, Andy, if we could, to where the reporter is putting the story together. Does the reporter approach someone and say, uh, yeah, I really need to talk to you. I'll make you anonymous. Or does the source come to the reporter or a combination of both? Walk us through that, that news gathering process in a place like Washington where you have people that want to talk but are fearful of talking? Yeah. Well, it's a really good, uh, those are good questions. And I think it comes in two broad forms. First of all, I think most of the anonymous sources that you are seeing in uh, stories in the Washington Post or uh, the New York Times are the result of reporters' relationships with uh, sources that have been developed in many cases over years and years and years. I mean, keep in, keep in mind, administrations come and go, but there is a large bureaucracy in Washington that remains throughout. And uh, while reporters come and go, a lot of them have been with the news organization for, you know, 15, 20 years, and they have been dealing with these people. So I mention this because when you have a source relationship with someone and you are quoting them as an anonymous source under that construct, you have a pretty good idea of their, um, their level of credibility. The second broad category is um, somebody who calls up or sends you something anonymously or wants to talk to you anonymously and you don't know them. Um, as a 
reporter or a, an editor, those are the ones that I'm, uh, I'm not necessarily skeptical of, but I'm, I'm very careful with because I don't know their level of credibility. Uh, you always have to be concerned in dealing with anonymous sources about personal motive. Now, sometimes those, those motives are in the public interest, but you still have to be concerned. So if you hear from somebody out of the blue who says, I want to I give you some information, but I want to be anonymous, uh, that triggers a whole protocol, in my opinion, of how you deal with them and how careful you need to be. Well, how do you deal with them? How, how do you check out somebody who's giving you information if they're so frightened to do it anonymously? Well, a couple things. Uh, I, I think the first thing in, from a reporter's standpoint in dealing with an anonymous source like that, someone you're dealing with, with for the first time, is that you, as a reporter, have an obligation to very carefully establish the terms uh, under which you're talking. So if somebody calls me up and says, uh, uh, I want to I tell you some information, but I want to do it off the record, I think as a reporter at that point, because you're probably dealing with someone who is not sophisticated in dealing with journalists, you have an obligation as a reporter to say, well, you know, I appreciate that, but let's first establish the, uh, the terms on which we are talking. And then you would say to me, off the record means this, whatever you think it means. Uh, most, uh, even within news organizations, we toss around these terms off the record, not for attribution, background, deep background. And I found um, when I managed a bureau in Washington and when I was ombudsman of the Washington Post that even in newsrooms with sophisticated veteran reporters, very often they had different interpretations of what that meant. So, for instance, uh, off the record under the ethics policy of the Washington Post means that you are receiving information from someone but you can't do anything with it other than just hold it in your brain. You, you, can't, you can't cite it and say an anonymous source told me this or that. But it, you, could use, you could use it to perhaps uh, as a tip to go to a source to exactly. get something on the record. It, it's, it's information that you have at your disposal. You can't print it or broadcast it, but you, you can use it in the news gathering process. Exactly. And so that's that's why it's uh, you know it's important to to work with the source so you have a firm understanding so that at a later date the source doesn't come back and say well no, I, I that isn't what that isn't what I meant at all so you know a very simple thing is if somebody calls up a reporter and says I want to tell you this do I have your agreement that uh, that we are speaking just uh, off the record. Um, or they might say we're speaking not for attribution. I think at that point you need to establish what that means, but you also need to help the source understand by asking them some questions. So you might say to the source, am I free to at least share this information confidentially with my editors? The reason that's important is many news organizations, like the Washington Post, at least when I was there, had a requirement that um, anonymous sources be disclosed to editors before stories go in the paper. Now, I once wrote a column on that saying they didn't follow that very closely, but still, that is the policy. So these these all can become very relevant if it, if you end up in a court case, for instance, or if prosecutors decide to, to go after trying to determine the source of a leak. You have to educate your, your new anonymous source so that they are as protected as they can be. 
Now, you used a term not for attribution, and let me try again. I believe that there's no general definition, and it changes from reporter to reporter and news organization to news organization. But that said, let me try to generalize it. For the average person out there, it means that somebody can be Uh, The information can be used, that somebody can even be quoted, but they can't be identified by name. Is is that, in essence, what not for attribution? That is correct. That would be my interpretation of not for attribution. Now, it's good that you raised that, because um, from the standpoint of the journalist and his or her editors, uh, you can't tell the public who is giving you the information. But increasingly, I think it becomes important for credibility because anonymous sources are being used so pervasively. It becomes important that um, the public learn two things from your story. One is you need to say, uh, according to anonymous source, and say as best you can, try to identify or clarify the quality of that source. So, for instance, you might say... um, uh, you know, Donald Trump is planning to uh, a new uh, Middle East initiative that will uh, be at odds with previous presidents, according to an anonymous source. The best thing you can do at that point, because you can't name the anonymous source, is to say perhaps an anonymous source with direct knowledge of the president's thinking, or an anonymous source who has been involved in the in the formulation of this policy. I think readers will note that in their experience in reading something from an anonymous source, that there are sometimes um, buzzwords that may mean something to Washington people, but don't really out here in the hinterlands. And and that means high-ranking White House official or top military official or any number of descriptors. Are, are those descriptors ever negotiated with the source? Yes, they are, and it's a really good point you raise because uh, as we're talking here, I, I, I think an overall point I'm trying to make is that you uh, reporters have an obligation to try to protect sources who are giving you quality information that is necessary for public discourse. So if I were doing a story, and using the example I just used about a new Trump initiative in the Middle East, and it came from an anonymous source, I would be talking to that anonymous source saying, here's how I plan to identify you. I'm going to say that you are a a, a top-level administration official with knowledge of the the policymaking in this area. Is that okay with you? You're sort of saying to the source, will that protect you? Because the source is being... You know, in many cases, they are they're putting their livelihood on the line by offering you information that they think needs to be in the public domain. And so you have to work with them to protect them. And, and many times, sources, even longtime sources, can, can lapse and, and be a little bit lackadaisical about this, and you don't want them exposed. So, that, so it's very important to try and give those descriptors. And I would also say another thing that um, quality news organizations do sometimes well, sometimes badly, is to tell the public why the source is being granted anonymity. Um, That often explains to the public why the source is of a high quality. So, for instance, you might say 
uh, the source was granted in anonymity uh, because uh, uh, he is not authorized to have possession of this information or because he has a security clearance that precludes him from speaking openly about this. That sort of says to the public, you didn't do it, uh, you didn't grant anonymity at the drop of a hat. And now I have a little bit better appreciation of why this person is uh, being granted anonymity. I know your time in Washington, you spent time with uh, at least two high-quality organizations, uh, the Cox uh, Newspaper Group and Media Group, as well as your time at the Washington Post as, as ombudsman. These organizations, uh, I assume, have rules about the use of anonymous sources or that before you go with the story, you have to have two on-the-record sources? Or can you help us out with what the standards are that then are accepted from? What are the mm -hmm. basic standards? Well, I think the basic standards are that, you're, uh, that you have fully vetted the source, the anonymous source, basically as to motive and credibility. So one thing, uh, let's go back to the anonymous source that calls you up for the first time and says, you know, I, uh, I've got a boss who's an assistant secretary of defense and he's crazy and he's out of his mind and he's doing erratic things. Well, you got to be very careful of that. You know, it, it may be that they have a bad working relationship and that uh, they, this, this person just wants to um, attack uh, their boss for personal reasons. So establishing... Um, the motive is extremely important. Second, and this uh, this is where I, during my time at the Post, I, I faulted them. I think you really have to have um, what I call prosecutorial editing uh, when someone comes in with a, an anonymous source story. I found at the Post that at high-level stories, uh, anonymous sources that are dealing with things involving national security um, there was that rigor. They are very, very, very careful with those stories. And, you know, the public may not appreciate this, but very often when a news organization like the Post or the Times is about to publish something that could have significant national security ramifications, they will call the agency or they will call the White House and say, we're about to publish this. And that will often trigger a conversation that I... I know in some cases has ended up in the Oval Office where they are negotiating um, not whether something should be reported, but the, the administration is saying, if you do this, uh, you know, for example, it might put some people in harm's way overseas or something like that. Well, very often the newspaper will back off on that. They will find another way to get the basic information out there, but in a way that protects uh, people who might be thrown in, in, into harm's way because of this. So um, at the high level, I found with the Washington Post, a lot of rigor. I mean, very, very careful. So, I, so for our audience, if you are reading a story of consequence in the Washington Post or the New York Times, chances are that has been very carefully vetted and there have been multiple sources and that the editors know those sources. Where I tended to fault the Post was more on routine stories where I felt that... Um, uh, anonymous sources were granted anonymity um, too uh, too casually, and I found that the editing 
very often the editors did not even ask to know who those anonymous sources were. Now, we're dealing with information that was not of huge consequence, but nonetheless, uh, I think if you have policies, you need to follow them. In my life, I'm not sure, except for maybe during Watergate, have I ever seen this many anonymous sources used by all media, but especially by the New York Times and the Washington Post. A a story uh, last week uh, with 30 unnamed anonymous sources in, in the Washington Post. Have you seen anything like this in in your 40 years in journalism? I have not. Uh, And I think this is a a consequence of, uh, well, I think there are a couple things at play here. One is when you see that many anonymous sources, one is uh, that speaks to the care that these major news organizations are taking to get it right. And very often, the having so many anonymous sources, I mean, you, you, a reader or listener might wonder, well, why after you get to the fifth or sixth one, why do you need so many more? Well, it's the depth of reporting. You, you know, you're, you're not only going to that seventh, eighth, tenth, or fifteenth source to verify the basic information, but you're digging deeper. You know, what, what more do you know? So I think it speaks to the care that they are taking at that level. But I also think, more significantly, it speaks to the number of people who uh, are leaking today, in many cases because they are disturbed by the direction of the Trump administration. And I'm not, I'm not just picking on the Trump administration. This happens very often when you have changes in administration and people come in and they have a different policy agenda and the people who are there in the bureaucracy may disagree with it. But I think particularly in this administration, I've never seen the level of of leaking. And, um, you know, think about it. You've got people in the bureaucracy uh, who maybe have devoted their life to uh, trying to uh, raise awareness of something like climate change. And then you have an administration that comes in and wants to back out of the Paris Accord. Well, those people who have devoted their life to this feel that their only recourse uh, to let the public know what's going on internally is to leak. And uh, and I would argue that in cases like that, uh, without taking sides on an issue like that, that leaking is good. Leaking is, is um, creating a, a broader understanding of uh, what's going on in government, and uh, it's adding to, uh, to civic discourse. There are so many questions here, but let me try to uh, continue in a in sort of a chronological way. And, and let's switch now to the source, uh, uh, the the leaker in the, in the vernacular. Uh, if the source has information and it's coming to a reporter, and the reporter has through various devices determined that the information is credible, does the reporter care whether the source is breaking the law in providing that information? Some leaks are not illegal. They may have questionable ethics. Other leaks of various uh, degrees of classified information are illegal. For the leaker, uh, what responsibility does the reporter have in in this process? 
Well, let's take them in order. Uh, the first assessment that has to be made is uh, is the information being leaked uh, of critical uh, public interest. And typically on these big stories, if it's showed up in the paper, there's been a discussion with the news organization and the sources, and there's a determination that, yes, that's uh, it's important that we take the risk. Now, the next question is um, the, the leaker. Um, I think journalists who are receiving this information have an important role in working with the leaker to make sure that they are protected as much as they can, because sometimes, certainly in the Obama administration, there were more prosecutions of leakers than all other previous administrations combined. One reason for the increase is that um, so much of leaking goes on electronically, and it's easier in this uh, electronic age to trace the flow of information. Either it it breached a security protocol in an agency and they can determine who leaked it, uh, or in some cases there may be surveillance. So that's why now if you go on the Washington Post website, uh, there's a very interesting alert there to the public saying, if you want to share a tip with us, here are all the different ways you can do it electronically that is encrypted that will greatly diminish the odds that anyone can know it came from you. So, so that is an acknowledgement that this is a, is a growing problem. Now, is it, uh, does a reporter care whether it's uh, uh, a leak that is legal or illegal? Well, I think they care because uh, they want to be mindful of what position it's putting their source in. Um, but in the end, I don't think they care that much. I, I think, um, uh, again, I said earlier, we, we make judgments uh, on uh, sometimes information is actually withheld because clearly we could report it, but it's not necessary to report it. Or So an example would be very often, I'll go back to when I was a Washington bureau chief, we knew in the second Gulf War, we knew exactly when the bombing was going to be uh, commenced on Baghdad. The reason for that was the Pentagon had alerted many of us bureau chiefs who had people in Baghdad, but we didn't report that. We certainly could have, but we didn't. So there is a lot of discretion that that takes place there. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We've heard some people and the president himself and some people within the Trump administration say, we ought to go out and lock up reporters who... Uh, provide this uh, illegally obtained information uh, to the public. 
As I understand it, uh, as long as the reporter did not do anything illegal in the obtaining of the information originally, the reporter is absolved from any legal uh, problem if the reporter possesses it and publishes it. Uh, yeah. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, that is that is generally correct. I mean, most people uh, look to the Espionage Act of 1917, which was right. enacted basically to to prevent leaks that would damage the United States. But over the years, courts have interpreted that very, very broadly uh, as to intent. And uh, there really has not been a successful prosecution. I don't think there's been a prosecution, successful or otherwise, of a journalist for uh, under that statute. Now, the concern under the Trump administration is that they will take that next step, and then we're in a, we're in a new age if that happens. Uh, that's a very significant thing. But generally, uh, you know, as long as the, you correctly point out, if the reporter, for instance, was working with a source and tapping someone's telephone, well, you know, then, uh, then the reporter's likely to be prosecuted for that because that's illegal. But if, if they are simply coming into possession of information, I think they are pretty safe. Now, the, the bigger problem, however, is when the government decides that um, information has been illegally leaked and they want to go after the leaker, not the reporter, but the only way that a prosecutor can figure out to prove that someone leaked in government is to go after the reporter to reveal his or her source. This is happening in civil cases, too, very often when someone sues a government agency like the FBI saying, you leaked information that was damaging to me, they will go after the news organization not to put the reporter in jail, but to, to force the reporter to say who in government gave you that information. That's where we're in an, an area where it's, it's pretty dicey. And at the end of the, the day, reporters, at least at the federal level, do not have absolute protection. There's no so shield it, law for uh, in, the, in the federal sense. Uh, that, that is correct. That, that would work to protect reporters. Some states, just for listeners out there, some states do have shield laws, uh, but we wouldn't be talking about a, a state law in this instance. That's correct. And in fact, most states have some form of a shield law. Uh, what you have at the federal level are guidelines, for instance, in the Justice Department, uh, guidelines before you can try to uh, get a, a reporter in court, you you have to follow certain guidelines. Is there another way you could identify the source or whatever? But uh, generally, they are they are generally protected. But at the end of the day, if a court wants to get that information out of a reporter at the federal level, uh, reporters do not have protection that way. And you know, you, 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 it still amazes me in this day and age. Reporters will say, "Well, I'll go to jail for that." You know, they'll never find my source. Well, that's easy to say, and some people have, and that's, in my opinion, that's admirable. But, of course, a savvy prosecutor will say, okay, well, we may throw you in jail, uh, but really what we want is your news organization to turn over all of their computer records, all their phone records, um, any hard drives you may have removed. Right. And then in civil cases, sometimes a judge will say, well, you're not going to give the source, okay, well, we're going to find the uh, the news organization $100,000 a day until you do it. Well, if you're a publicly traded company or even a privately traded company, um, that uh, that tends to get the attention of the people who own the company pretty quickly. 
with competition being what it is between, say, the Washington Post and the New York Times, are rules bent a little bit on how those news organizations approach anonymous sources in a time like we're living in? Uh, how do you mean approach them? Well, it, it, it seems to me that we're having more and more stories with anonymous sources, period. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's, that's a given. But we've seen the New York Times uh, uh, eliminate their equivalent of an ombudsman. Uh, the, the, the Washington Post, uh, like I said, published a story with 30 uh, anonymous sources. Those two are in hot competition for the news. Would they maybe just go a little less stringent on some of their internal rules as it relates to publishing a story with anonymous sources because of that competition. I think yeah. a lot of listeners out there saying, well, they're just in competition and they'll do anything. Yeah. Uh, I would say, uh, first of all, I would hope not. I would hope they'd have the same rigor for big stories and small stories using anonymous sources. Uh, secondly, I would say uh, if you are in the reading public and you're reading a, a front page really significant story involving anonymous sources and multiple anonymous sources that either the Times or the Post or whatever whatever major news organization, they've probably taken very, very great care of that. So you you can have a high level of confidence that that story is probably correct. Where I worry, uh, and to your point, is um, less important stories. that rely on anonymous sources and may not have that prosecutorial editing that's going on uh, right. lower down. There is competition. Um, there's immense competition in in Washington right now. And we have a very controversial administration with a lot of people leaking. So uh, what worries me about all this is I, I worry that uh, one day um, we are going to have a, a major problem uh, with a story involving anonymous sources that was misinterpreted. It, it may not be that uh, that the news organization um, intended for it to, in any way, to to be inaccurate. But uh, did they interpret it right, correctly? Did they um, did they give before publication a wide enough? Um, did they did they talk to people widely enough that might have different views to make sure that the other side is represented or that? Uh, that there are any red flags that should surface that they have surfaced. That's what worries me because, um, you know, it's a very competitive environment right now, and there's a lot going on uh, that should be in the public interest. Administration people, whether it's the president or Sean Spicer or others, uh, their defense to these anonymous stories uh, obviously can be it's inaccurate, but most of the time they haven't used that defense. Uh, but it's to demonize the leaker as being somebody who inherently is not credible. And therefore yeah. it translates to anonymous sources, which some people have even gone so far as equate that with fake news. Talk about that dynamic, would you please? Well, you know, I, I've been a Washington journalist so long, I have to sort of laugh whenever I hear 
an administration official or anyone in Congress say we need to crack down on leakers. They all leak. They leak when they think it's in their best interest, and they hate leaks that are critical of them. Um, every administration uh, leaks to some degree. I mean, in, in the, the Bush 43rd presidency, when in the early days of the invasion of Iraq, they were leaking all sorts of things about uh, the war plan and the strategy because they thought it was going to be a piece of cake. Well, it turned out it, it was not. It turned against them. But that's a case where they were leaking because they thought it would be good to, to show their uh, you know, their successes in the war. So uh, other leaking that I, leaking from Capitol Hill, every time I hear somebody on the Senate or House Intelligence Committee saying, we have to crack down on this, we need an investigation, I think, bring it on. Uh, you know, if you really want that, you're going to find out that people on your staff, and many times you yourself are the leakers, or let's go to Donald Trump. Let's keep in mind that during the campaign, he applauded WikiLeaks because he thought that they were revealing information that was critical to his opponent. So I'm, uh, pardon me for being cynical about this, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's human nature that you will like a leak that is favorable to you and you will hate it if it's negative. In this competitive environment that we were talking about, there's a sense, I think, of almost a frenetic approach to getting stories and publishing and publishing first and and being ahead of the competition. Do reporters often get caught up in that frenzy and frenetic environment? And if they do, it seems to me from what you're saying that prosecutorial editors absolutely cannot get caught up in that frenetic environment. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you're both uh, you're right on both counts. First of all, right now, it is an unbelievable pace going on uh, in journalism in Washington just because of what's going on in Washington and the, the, uh, the turmoil of this particular presidency. Um, and, uh, and there are a lot of people that are angry in the government, angry with what's going on, so they are leaking. So it, it, it uh, the the reporter, of course, is going to welcome those leaks, but they have a responsibility on the front line to really be vetting those leaks for personal motive, for context, for accuracy, for uh, for anything else that would uh, make sure that what they write, what they air, is in the proper context and accurate. But then your second point about the uh, what we call the backfield editing, the the prosecutorial editing, that's where editors really need to shine. They need to step up, and you know it's not it's not easy. I mean, imagine anyone's workplace when you when you work with colleagues who are working very hard, you tend to um, be their friend. You're cheering them on, but as an editor at that point, when that piece of copy or that piece of tape of story hits you and you have to do the editing on it. You have to turn and and basically be uh, uh, one of the toughest critics of this person that you work next to. You have to be asking very tough questions it's, and and scrutinizing absolutely everything. That's the value of good editing. Well, let's look forward just a bit. Uh, 
you see this changing, getting uh, worse, getting more uh, as the the months go on. Uh, you've been around Washington a long time. Uh, what's the arc of all of this? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, I think we we have an unusual presidency here, and it's uh, this is a presidency that purports to want to be transformational. And so, regardless of who is who won the election, if you are trying to be a transformational president or administration, you're going to um, be rubbing a lot of people in government the wrong way who have devoted their lives to doing it a different way. So I think there's a good chance we will go for a very prolonged period where we have continued leaking on this level. What worries me is that with this particular president who tends to double down, um, that he will take the additional step and go after the media in a legal sense. And then you are, at that point, you are clearly into Russian-Turkey authoritarian territory. You know, right now, I think it's important that uh, the media, uh, or the, the Donald Trump has, has really been waging a war of words. Um, if it's a war of actions against the media, that's an entirely different thing. You start jailing reporters, and we have uh, crossed the threshold that I I am very confident would be very damaging to the country. As people out here, uh, as news consumers, um, let me just give you a personal example. Um, yesterday, I think, was uh, on a scale a, a fairly slow news day. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of people, my, my compatriots and colleagues, who, who sort of agree with me. Everybody was sort of down yesterday. <laughs> It's the doldrums. It it was like we as as news consumers are caught up with the adrenaline that's going on in in Washington. Uh, that I think is dangerous when I when I step back from from that because if if a news organization less credible than the Washington Post or the New York Times says okay we we, we can have an advantage by feeding that. They're, they're going to feed us all kinds of things that may or may not be true. I think there is that danger, but I don't think it's, uh, it's happened yet. But what is clear is that, um, uh, and this is, this is shown by the increased readership of major newspapers and uh, the increased audiences of cable networks, people are addicted to what's going on in Washington right now. And because we're in a, uh, a, an electronic era, um, people are checking their iPhones and their mobile devices uh, every minute. They're getting alerts. And so that competition, uh, coupled with the immediacy, it means that everyone's you know, going at a pretty fast speed. So when you hit a down day, uh, it really, um, I think for the public and sometimes for reporters, it thinks like, wow, you know, this, is, this is terrible. We're not doing our jobs. When in fact, there inevitably will be down days where there's not much news and that life goes on as normal. So to your point, um, I hope I hope it doesn't come across as uh, the media just trying to get anything out there to feed the beast and to keep the ratings up. I know there is that perception. I think one way that uh, the media can guard against that, or several ways, is one is to have the sort of the fortitude to, uh, when there is 
not something of tremendous significance to put the day's news in its proper context. And then second, to be ever vigilant uh, about credibility and accuracy and fairness, and, and to also be more transparent about how the news organization does its job. You know, it, I've often said this in, in talks or when I talk to students, when I was ombudsman of the Washington Post, a typical call would be um, somebody would call to complain about something in the paper, and I would listen to them, and then I would say, well, let me check the Post Ethics Code, and I'll get back to you. And 99% of the time, their reaction would be, what, you have an ethics code? <laughs> so what that really tells us is that they have very little understanding that we even consider ethics uh, in, in quality journalism. So we have a story to tell. And as it relates to anonymous sources, I think we need to do a much better job of talking about the quality of the source, why they're granted an anonymity, and to be um, transparent with readers about why we published uh, information from that confidential document, why we think as a news organization, it's in the public interest. They may not agree, but if they at least have an appreciation that we thought it through or before we published it and saying in a story, we consulted with former top intelligence officials to see if this would cause any damage. I think that that starts to help the public understand that we're not just taking this stuff over the transom and throwing it in the newspaper or putting it on online or on air uh, without any consideration for its consequences. Well, I think we're going to end there, Andy, and thank you so much for helping us out. I, I hope that as all of this goes on that we'll be able to talk again and, and keep the public sort of informed behind the scenes a little bit of, of what's going on and how they might be able to interpret things. Uh, I'd be happy to talk further. It's a, it's a big topic, and I think we're, we're going to be uh, – uh, we're going to have a lot of these issues that continue for years to come. All right. Thanks, Andy. Okay, thank you. Today, we've been talking with veteran award-winning journalist Andrew Alexander about the use by media of unnamed anonymous sources in controversial news coverage of the Trump-Russia investigation. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through Apple's Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.